I've said anything to this particular group, but <clears throat> I've had the privilege now in being in over 80 countries. 80 countries, and that's kind of a kind of a neat thing to have seen so much of the world. I talked about this morning <clears throat> sacrifice. And the sacrifices that I've seen, you know, when I when I go around and I see all of our missionaries, I really see demonstrated sacrifice. They could be doing a lot of things. And these missionaries, particularly these nationals that are on the ground, uh, I have I have been in, in situations like in Bolivia where a man's support continued to drop and drop and drop and drop. He said, listen, if I have no money, I will continue to serve the source of life. I will find a way to serve the source of life. Because I believe in what I do. And I, I will tell you, I, my heart just breaks for these guys. I don't want them to serve under such sacrificial terms. On the other hand, they're doing what they believe God wants them to be doing. <clears throat> I was impressed when uh, recently on my last trip to India. First time I've been to Calcutta. Some of you are familiar with uh, Calcutta. <clears throat> uh, uh, I had the opportunity to go to... Um, uh, you, you know the name William Carey? Did you see that picture? Yeah, there he is. Um, you, you, have you heard of William Carey before? They call him the father of modern missions. But I don't know if you've heard his story. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable, his story. Uh, I was able to go to his church. Uh, his his uh, Cary Baptist Church is in Calcutta, and I uh, got to go walk around it and see it. And there's, of course, a training school associated with it. And um, what an honor to stand behind the pulpit of that church where John Kerry would have preached. Well, as I, as I mentioned, he is considered the father of modern missions. He was impressed uh, early on in his life with the Moravian missionaries. I talked about the Moravian missionaries this morning. Those were missionaries that came from Czech. They also went all around the world, all right, but they came from Czech, and, and, and somewhere along the line he came into contact with these Moravian missionaries and became increasingly dismayed that his fellow Protestants lacked any interest in missions. In response, he penned something, an, uh, an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. I love British English, you know, it's so precise. But that's what that's what he wrote, an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use the means for, for the conversion of the heathens. He argued that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times. He castigated fellow believers for ignoring it. That's what he wrote. Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners, who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. But Kerry didn't stop there. He didn't just stop with preaching about the Great Commission. In 1792, he organized a missionary society. And at its inaugural meeting, he preached a sermon with the call that is probably one of his most famous 
quotes. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Within a year, Carrie, a man named John Thomas, who was a surgeon, and Carrie's family, which was now three boys with another child on the way, they're on a ship headed to India. This is a year later. Thomas and Carrie had grossly underestimated what it would cost to live in India. Now, this is 200 years ago. And they just went and didn't have a whole lot of support. But they had no idea how much it was going to cost them to live. And so uh, when Carrie described those early years as miserable. And so when Thomas left the ministry there, Carrie was forced to move with his family and repeatedly move from place to place to try to just find a job so that he could sustain them. Illness began to affect the whole family. Every single one of them. Loneliness. And then regret set in. He penned this phrase, I'm in a strange land. No Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. That's what William Carey wrote. But he also wrote this. Well, I have God, and His Word is sure. Well, he learned Bengali, and in a few weeks after having learned Bengali, began translating the Bible into Bengali. And by the way, they use that translation today. Bengali is the largest language in India. Uh, in fact, it's bigger than Hindi. And they still use Carrie's Bible today in India. So he began his preaching ministry during this period. At one point, he himself became sick, contracted malaria, and then his five-year-old Peter died of dysentery. His wife, during this period, became overwhelmed by this and her mental health began to deteriorate. She began to suffer delusions. She accused Carrie of adultery. In fact, she began threatening him with physical bodily harm. She walked around with a knife in her hand, threatening to kill him. Thankful for the wife I have. She eventually had to be confined to a room and constrained. It was that bad. This was what he wrote in this season. This indeed is the valley of the shadow of death to me. But characteristically, he often would add, but I rejoice that I am here, notwithstanding, and God is here. You know what's interesting about Harry is he saw little fruit in his lifetime. What I have described was what he saw. He was misunderstood by nationals, his supporters, his family, his immediate family, his uh, extended family didn't understand why he continued to stay there with all of these things that were going wrong. They felt that he neglected his family. 
and so sick, abused, mistreated, he gave up everything so that he could serve an Indian. So I have this opportunity to see all that he had done. And by the way, he would never realize, he would never know the impact that he had in India. His impact continues. But let me help you understand, he did not know it. It would happen after his death. This morning I talked about the the passage in Romans about offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. But what if, after all of the sacrifice, even being willing to move overseas, what if our motivation wasn't enough? What if this offering that we had to offer wasn't what God wanted? What if in God's eyes, it wasn't what He asked? You know, we can be very busy doing good things and not get around to what God expects from us. 1 Samuel 15. To obey is better than sacrifice. Can you imagine all of the sacrifice that your pastors, that your missionaries make? And what if they weren't obeying God? Well, in 1 Samuel 15, we're going to read What happens when you get the cart before the horse? 1 Samuel 15, I'll start in verse 1 and just make some commentary on the way through. Samuel, verse 1, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people over Israel. Now therefore hearken unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel how he laid for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. This was a word from God. Samuel was sent by God to see that Saul was anointed as king. Samuel, uh, in this passage, we we read that um, in verse 2 he says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. I told you this just a minute ago about my switching hats back and forth. You know, sometimes, and and it's really complicated now that I have my son there, there. Because I'm a boss in this regard, I'm a friend in often in certain scenarios, and sometimes I'm dad. And you know, sometimes it's hard for him to see which hat I've switched to. Well, God actually has put on a hat here. And, and when he uses this phrase, he said, I am the Lord of hosts. Literally the host of Saba. Hear the voice of the Lord of Saba. That is the Lord of armies. You know, sometimes, I think quite often we like to put God into a a convenient box that we like to understand Him. And what God was saying is, 
Now what I'm about to say, I'm putting on the God of the army hat. Because what you're about to do is warfare. And some of it might not even uh, seem very Christian. He didn't say that. <laughs> but it, what, what, we're, what we hear he's about to do doesn't seem very Christian, does it? But God said, I, the Lord of the armies, have something I want you to do. And by the way, what he was asking them to do was a very high privilege. He was getting to fulfill a prophecy. This was a prophecy that he had told him, guess what you get to do? You've read about it, you've heard about it, guess who gets to do this? Guess who gets to take out the Amalekites? You! It was prophesied in Exodus 17, in Numbers 24, where they said completely blot out the memory of Amalek. And in fact, Israel's first king was the first person that would be able to do, do this as a military. There was never before a leader that could have pulled this off. And so God looked at the man that he had appointed and he said, listen, you get to fulfill this prophecy that I have planned from all the way back in Exodus. And so verse 4, And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go depart, get you down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. He had no beef with these people. No problem, God didn't say, get rid of the um, Kenites. He was okay with this. Go, depart, get you down from Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah unto thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Emphatic. Pause there a moment. He took Agag alive. And utterly destroyed the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them but everything that was vile and refused that he destroyed them. So he utterly destroyed. All right, let's paint this picture. He utterly destroyed all of the people except. Didn't sound like he did what he was told to do. It actually looks like some sort of self-serving, selective obedience. He spared Agag. He allowed his men to keep the best of the animals. And got rid of things that weren't the best. Verse 10, then, he, then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried 
unto the Lord all night. Have you ever been hurt by somebody? What a proud moment it must have been for Samuel to be the prophet that would get to anoint the first king. He was so proud of him. He was there as his confidant, someone to build up and encourage. And then God would have to go back to Samuel and guess what? Guess what? He didn't do what I asked him to do. In fact, he said, it repenteth me. You know, it's two times that we read that word that God says that word repenteth. The word nakam. It's used one other time by God in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. When God witnessed the wickedness of humanity that led to the flood. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. The last time God said that, He caused a flood to destroy the earth. That's how strongly God felt about what had happened here. He repented that He ever set up Saul. <clears throat> Poor Samuel. He was devastated. And so in verse 12, when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. So Saul's not where Samuel would have expected him. Why? Why is he not there? <laughs> He's actually down building a monument of himself. That's what Saul's doing. So now Samuel has to go find him when he's gloating in doing what he wasn't supposed to be doing. And Samuel, in verse 13, came to Saul and Saul said unto him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act this one out a little bit. And Saul said to him, Blessed be thou the Lord, thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. As though... He didn't, Samuel didn't know what was happening here. What arrogance. How naive. God had already told Samuel, he hasn't done what I asked him to do. And, and here he's acting like he's the servant of the Lord. Blessed, you know, and using all the good Christian terminology. And then verse 14, Samuel said, then what means this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears? and the lowing of the oxen. As, as uh, uh, Saul is, is being proud about the fact that he's done what he was supposed to do for God, there's animals making noise. These animals that are supposed to be dead. Verse 15, and Saul said, they brought them from the Amalekites. For the people... For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. It turns out disobedience in the year 600 B.C. is the same today. This is exactly what we do. He starts out by saying, they, the, the people, 
He shifted the blame. He didn't say, well, we, I, he said they. He said, you didn't do what I did. You kept the animals and, and Agag. And they said, well, yeah, well, they did that. They, they were involved in the keeping of the sheep. And, the... and then he does what we also do, which is he manipulates the situation, manipulates the truth. And he said, uh, that we establish some sort of holy rationale. He says, they're going to offer it as a sacrifice. Because I know that my Lord loves a good, pure sacrifice. Right? We offer the very best to the Lord. So spiritual. And then we attempt to even deceive. Like we can deceive God. He placed a smoke screen out. He, they kept the best. And so what he, what he tries to focus on, but we killed a lot. Look around. Look at all the dead carcasses of these animals that we killed. We, we, we killed 80% of them. 80% are dead. They weren't the best. We kept the best so that we could sacrifice them. Like, like God would be tricked. Oh, really? Oh, that was good. That was good thinking. That's good thinking, so I'll keep the good ones and get rid of all these hundreds of thousands of other animals because that's what I asked. Like God would forget what He asked. Who does He think He's killing? He's fooling. Verse 16, Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay. And I'll tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou was little in thine own sight, was thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore, then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the soil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag. What? Let me read that again. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone the way of the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the chief of things, which should have been utterly destroyed, so that they could sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. This is his summary. I did obey. I went like God said to do. I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. I brought Agag. What? Did you for... God didn't say bring Agag. And somehow Saul has convinced himself that he's done the right thing. Did he really forget? I want to tell you something that's interesting in, in battle, in war. Agag was his trophy. You know, you've seen in all the World War II films, you know, right before the, the leader is about to get taken, he kills himself. Because there's nothing more humiliating than be, be used as a trophy by the enemy. So leaders fall on the sword. So that they're not drugged through as some sort of trophy for 
those that have conquered them. That's why Saul is interested in Agag, keeping Agag. He was a trophy. Well, these last four sentences in this passage are interesting. You know, one thing, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear Pastor Tim is, is continuing to, to study. Because sometimes there are things that we don't pick up in, in that, that just aren't easy to understand. But what happens next is actually a poem. The last four sentences were written as a poem. Verse 22, and Samuel said rhetorically, hath the Lord as, as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. But what Samuel says next is the profound maxim that, centri- that summarizes the central tenet of Torah. And literally in Hebrew, it's translated, obedience surpasses sacrifice. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. See, sacrifice is integrated into the life of obedience to God, but it's never meant as a substitute for obedience. So, let me explain this. So, you can sacrifice and you can sacrifice. And, you know, I have been to places, temples, where people are beating their bodies, turning them into bloody messes, and they think they're offering it to their God. And in the end, they get, I've seen them make their way. They've made their way down the temple aisle where they, they flog themselves as though they are making some kind of sacrifice to God that God never asked them to do. And all of this pain, and sometimes they end up sick and in the hospital and die. And God didn't ask them to do that. Really what He wants from Him, from them, from us, is our obedience. Not a bunch of really important and sacrificing acts. Verse 23, for rebellion, now get this, please, get this. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Don't miss this. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. This is how bad disobedience is. It's as bad as witchcraft and idolatry. Most of us would say, oh, I'm not into witchcraft. Idolatry? This disobedience is a form of idolatry. It elevates self-will as a god. Interestingly, before the end of Saul's life, he and another family member became connected both of them, with blatant divination, witchcraft, and idolatry. This was symbolic. God was saying, this is how bad it is. It's the same as uh, as, uh, witchcraft and idolatry. And then later on, Saul would get involved in witchcraft and idolatry. And so this rebelliousness, this lack of obedience, was a slippery slide. He said, because thou rejected the word of the Lord, thou has, he hath rejected thee 
from being king. When you rejected the word of the Lord, he stopped recognizing you as king. You might have had the title, but you stopped being king in God's eyes. Well, it's almost ice cream time. And I know we're all thinking that. But we can't go home without a few very important things that we, that we ought to take away from this passage. First of all, when we hear from the Lord, we better listen and obey to the very last detail. We all have kids. You walked in your kid's bedroom and you said, clean up this room, this thing is a wreck. And you go back in and you see they have pushed everything to the wall. So the floor is clean, the center of the room is clean. I see parents looking at children, we know what's happening here. It's shoved into a closet, it's shoved under a bed. They have done a form of what we ask. God doesn't operate like this. He doesn't want a version. He wants the real thing. The second takeaway is partial obedience is in fact disobedience. Number three, an abundance of good doesn't replace complete obedience. <laughs> Uh, I think we think we'll do a lot of good, really important good things. I do a ton of good stuff. Not enough. It's not enough to just be really good at a lot of things because God says, I need complete obedience. To obey, oh, forgiveness. This, this is the hope in this. Forgiveness comes after repentance. You know what's sad in this? All Saul had to do was say I was wrong. You know, we, 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 it's funny because in, in a moment, I mean in the beginning I talked about him being the God of hosts, the God of armies, but he's also so many other things to us. And he forgives. And you know, you might say, I've made some mistakes that I don't think I can fix. There's going to be consequences. There's going to be consequences to not having completed full obedience, but God says there is forgiveness with me. But it's not going to come without repentance. To obey is better than sacrifice. What if what if after all these years, after all these Sunday school classes that you've taught, after uh, all of the sermons that you've preached, all of the after school programs that you've been involved in, after all the times of singing in church, all of, of giving the very most you had to offer in the in the, in the offering plate, what if after all of that, all of that sacrifice, you realize it wasn't what God wanted from you? Sacrifice doesn't replace obedience. 
And quite often, I, I work with a lot of young people, and quite often I will tell young people, you know what? You keep telling me you don't know what God wants from you. I believe you do. I believe you know what God wants from you. You might not know all of the details, but I think He's revealed to you the next step. I just don't think you want to do it. And you know, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's true for adults too. I believe you know what God wants you to do. He has revealed very clearly the next step. You just don't want to do it. And if God has revealed a next step to you, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to take heart with what we have studied both this morning and this evening. Because God wants us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. But don't do that if you haven't taken the right steps of obedience. Because that's really what He wants. And we can be really busy giving Him things that He doesn't need. He didn't ask. And that He doesn't really want. Because what He wants is your obedience. To obey better than sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, there isn't any message that I preach that I, I don't have to ask myself, Lord, can I preach this? Am I doing everything, all that You have asked of me? Am I even, even in this job, Father, that I have as a CEO of a mission agency, maybe it's not what You want. Father, I pray that I have, I have real true confidence that I'm where You want me to be doing what I, I'm supposed to be doing. But Father, I pray that my pride will never prevent me from seeing what You want from me. And perhaps, Father, there are people in this room right now who, who have wrestled with what God wants for them. They know that God has said to them certain things. And God is waiting for them as they scramble about and are busy and, and keeping themselves really occupied with a smokescreen of this Christian life, not accomplishing, not doing exactly what You called them to do. And so, Father... Perhaps today there's someone that says, it's about time. It's about time that I get back doing what God has called me to do. And so, Father, I pray that, not, that, that people don't leave here tonight without wrestling with this. That they don't walk out the door tonight without making some sort of commitment between you and them that they're going to get on track with what you want for their life. No matter what stage they find themselves in in life. And so, Father, in, in just these moments as we close out this time, might we all take a moment and reflect, are, are we where you want us to be?